long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, before the internet, if you had a question, a how-to question, you would have to actually exit your home, go to the library, you would actually have to go to the library, armed with your library card, and go to the how-to section to check out a book. And you hope in that how-to section that there are pictures in that book. And so you would go get the book, and if you need to figure out how to change a fuse in your car, or repot a plant, or train your dog not to pull on her leash, or how to install a garbage disposal, or whatever else, you'd have to go and get a book, crack it open, and then say, okay, well, this is how to do it, and follow the directions. Now, no more. We go to YouTube. YouTube we, does, gives us all we need to know on all the questions we have, or it seems like it. You go to YouTube, and boom goes the dynamite. You can figure out how to do anything. You can figure out how to do anything. And in fact, you can go to YouTube and find out what a pastor is supposed to be and do, but I do not recommend that. Let's just say the better resource we're going to find here is today in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Today is another edition of how-to when it comes to pastoral ministry. We've seen in 1 Timothy that, pa- that pastors have specific qualifications that they need to meet in chapter 3 to be able to be, even be considered a pastor. In chapter 4, we see how pastors should teach and what they, how they should conduct themselves. And today, Paul again picks up the topic of faithful pastoral ministry. And in verse 17, he begins to another how-to section, and he's directing Timothy and, and, our, and us also as we overhear He's directing Timothy on how to think about three things when it comes to pastoral ministry. Money, discipline or sin, and ordination. Now, part of the reason we're... This is, this is, I'm committed to expositional preaching. I love expositional preaching. But there are times when I, when I come to passages like this, I think, why did we decide to preach 1 Timothy? This is another passage. And as the preacher, this is awkward. But it's necessary because what you need to understand, you need to know, you need to know what the Bible says about eldership, about pastors, so that you can know if I and the guys on the team are actually faithfully fulfilling the mandates of the Scriptures. You need to know what a pastor is to be and what he is to do. Otherwise, how are you going to know if he's faithful or merely just entertaining? How are you going to know if he's taking the easy way out or working hard? How will you know if he has the right priorities or just trots out certain preferences? How are you going to know the difference between what, we, what he must do and what he may do? Listen, let's be real. Pastors are imperfect servants of a perfect king. We're just ordinary guys who desperately love Jesus and desperately want to serve you well. We have all the normal temptations, failings, fears, and flaws. And our desire is to blend into the background so that you're not preoccupied with us, but our common Savior. But sometimes, sometimes the Bible addresses how pastors ought to conduct themselves. And we don't shirk from those passages. We preach them. And as we do, as I do, I shake with fear and trepidation knowing that sometimes I preach better than I live. Who is, after all, worthy to say, follow me as I follow Christ? 
surely, not me, not any of us, but here we are. Your pastors are commissioned by the risen Jesus for a specific task to call you and us away from ourselves, our preoccupations, our fears, our preferences, so that we might together follow Jesus. Main idea is this. Your pastors serve Jesus by serving you. Your pastors serve Jesus by serving you. I'm going to read beginning in verse 17. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. God's Word addresses us inerrantly and says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us all this morning, Lord, as I open your word and attempt to describe and proclaim the truth that is found in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be not just informed, but transformed in whatever way you design us to be. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your presence. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be active in and among all of us. <coughs> I pray that you would you would give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me with the ability to preach a sermon that's a bit awkward, Lord. And I pray that you would give me the gift of self-forgetfulness, Lord. And I ask that you would, you would just bless these efforts as weak and as frail as they are. And in your name we pray. Amen. So how to think about fast pastoral ministry when it comes to money, sin, and ordination. So first, here's the first question. What about money. What about money? Verse 17 gives direction and verse 18 gives biblical reasoning. Verse 17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, and then in verse 18 we see, well, here's the biblical reasoning. Why? Whenever you see the word for, this is the reason why that was just stated. For, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So, in verses 17 and 18, churches are directed to pay their pastors in two ways. In both money and honor. And let me just say, that is awkward to stand up here and say it. To state the obvious, in some ways, I would rather have one of you 
sally forth with the ball-peen hammer and strike my ring finger than do this. But here we are. Here we are. And so what I want you to recognize a couple things first is this. Note that the word elder is plural. It's not elder, it's elders, meaning the ideal church scenario should be directed by a qualified group of men known as elders. Secondly, not deacons, but elders. Secondly, the focus is on those who labor in preaching and teaching. All pastors, all elders, all overseers are ministers of the word, but not all will have Sunday morning responsibilities as preachers and teachers. There are exceptions, but part of the reason Paul is saying, hey, you should pay them, is because doing serious, substantial, biblical work takes time, and it's not often something somebody can do on the side. It takes work and time and study, and it's difficult. And when it comes to the topic of money, just so you know, our church has a very gifted and capable financial review committee led by Zach Tripoli. And that team sets the salaries for all the elders. We do not, I do not, and that's the way it has been for years. We want, when it comes to money, to stay above and beyond reproach. So, how do we know, maybe explicitly, that money is involved? Look at verse 18. We have this revolutionary way that Paul gives us the reasoning for giving double honor. Verse 18 says this, For Scripture says, notice that word Scripture, Do not, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. You might think that doesn't seem very revolutionary, but what Paul is doing here is he's quoting from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7. Here's why this is revolutionary. The, we have a New Testament writer quoting another New Testament writer, putting the New Testament on equal footing with the Old Testament. Right here in verse 18, we have specific evidence that the writings of the New Testament were circulating and recognized early, 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 despite what Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code people say. This is real. So within the first generation after Christ's resurrection, we have the Gospel of Luke that Paul knows about. And Paul quotes and calls it equal with Deuteronomy, saying it's Scripture. Now, I could go on a big rabbit trail. I won't, but that's significant. But what do the quotes mean? Well, what do oxen do? Oxen work harvesting the fields, pulling plows, threshing corn and grain and the like. And so what Paul says is those he's identifying in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, that the oxen, that the Lord commands, the oxen should have some of the grain, some of the food that they help prepare. Why? Because they need to eat. So Deuteronomy chapter 25 shows that God has a concern for working animals, and he wants them cared for. Now, he's arguing, the reason Paul uses Deuteronomy 25, is that he's arguing from lesser to greater. He's saying, in, in essence, if God cares about the well-being of the oxen, how much more the elders? And this becomes explicit in the second half of verse 18. When we hear Jesus in his voice from Luke chapter 12 saying, the laborer deserves his wages, Paul applies that same principle to the elders. In other words, it is legitimate for those who labor as elders, they should be able to make a living from their work. 
This is why Protestants have never taken, had their clergy take a vow of poverty. They need to eat. They need to provide for their family. It's also interesting that Paul here consciously compares pastors to oxen. Now, if I'm picking an animal, I'm not thinking, I want to be like an ox. I'm thinking, you know what? I'd like to be a wolf. A lone wolf wandering the woods with a faraway gaze in his eye that all the other forest animals cower in fear. He can howl. And people are kind of afraid of him. Or maybe a, an eagle that, that rises above the mountains and, and, and just floats around hovering and, and soaring above the heights. Or maybe the lion, who's the, you know, he's the king of the jungle. Nope. We're dumb oxes. We just, you know, what are oxen? Oxens don't, you don't, when you go to a circus, there's no trick oxens. You know, it's not like they have them dancing or, you know, doing tricks. All oxen can do is one thing. They pull and they, they, they work at harvesting fields. Same thing with elders. We're, we're one trick, I guess not ponies, oxen. And our call is to serve you. Our call is to, to serve Jesus by serving you. And so we see here that the ministry and the work ought to be paid. Um, but, but know this, we serve, we're, we do this not because we, we want the money, we, serve, we, we do this because we love Jesus. I, for my part, think it's downright scandalous that I get paid to study and preach God's word on a weekly basis. That is incredible to me. And it's even more incredible that people come to listen. George Brett, the Hall of Fame baseball player, once said, you may have gotten used to me wearing this uniform, but I never have. You may have gotten used to me standing in this pulpit, but I never have. And I don't think I ever will. We're not professionals, detached, looking to try to boost numbers and climb a corporate ladder. We care mostly about you, and we want to serve you, and we want to lead you in such a way that you have a deepening and more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. So it is our joy and privilege each week to trumpet the truth of Jesus Christ now, we, be, we may be laborers worthy of some wages, but that's not the focus of our, of our lives. That's not what we want week to week for you to be most aware of. We want you to be aware of the labors of Jesus Christ for you. We're mere plodding oxen. Jesus is our risen King. He is the one and only One who left ultimate glory to come down, down, down to ultimate shame. It was shameful enough for Him to leave heaven when he became a man, a person just like us, yet he labored day after day for the glory of God and the good of mankind. And what did he receive for his toil and labor? labor? What were his wages? What was his pay? Death. Even death on a cross. He was a laborer who richly deserved the wages from God of blessing, honor, glory from his Father. But he received scorn rejection, wrath, so that you and I might not get what we deserve, but get what He deserved. So we trumpet Him. We serve you as we serve. We, we serve Jesus by serving you and trumpeting Him. 
So that's the topic of money. What about the topic of sin or discipline? What about sin? What about sin? Pastors are just men. It's not as if it's impossible for a pastor to make mistakes and or sin. Sometimes those sins take hold and deem us disqualified for ministry. Sometimes pastors sin and they cover up sin and they need to be corrected. The most famous place this happens in the Bible is when Paul confronted Peter about his actions at the church in Antioch. That's in Galatians 2. Paul recounts the story. But when Cephas, that's his Hebrew name, Peter is is the name we're used to, the Greek way to say it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? The reason Paul confronted Peter publicly was that his sin was public and he led people astray. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes pastors need to be publicly corrected. What does that look like? Well, there's due process described in verse 19. Here's the due process. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Two or three, not just one person with hearsay. This is a protection for the elder and for the church. In two places in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law requires two witnesses of wrongdoing to convict anyone. How does this make sense? Well, witnesses, if there are witnesses to a pastor's sin and wrongdoing, they must come forward to the church leadership so that they can present the evidence. Notice, this, there needs to be evidence and not just hearsay, or I heard, or maybe this is the case, or I had a dream. There needs to be evidence. Now, this is contra, this is against everything that goes on in social media. There are all kinds of accusations leveled on social media, and social media is happy to play the role of, Judge, jury, and sentencer in about nine seconds. That's wrong. We must have due process. That's not to say that sometimes pastors sin. And there are times they need to be corrected and disciplined so that they might repent. Pastoral ministry is a position of trust. And sometimes elders violate the congregation's trust by sinning against the church's congregants. And they need to be corrected. I've heard of too many pastors who manipulate instead of lead, who coerce instead of serve, who run away instead of protecting, who compromise instead of preach and teach, who shame instead of inspiring. Those things are always wrong. And too many pastors who hide behind the Bible or verses in the Bible or the pulpit or their so-called authority to avoid being corrected. Listen, we're just sheep. We pastors are sheep too. We need exhortation. We need correction. We need confrontation. We need encouragement. We need consolation. We need need comfort just like everybody else. 
So when a pastor sins, he ought to be corrected. That said, there are times where as elders, in the course of our job, in leading and serving, there are times that people lob false accusation, false accusations at pastors. This doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. Sometimes angry people can manufacture charges out of thin air against an elder. Now, in my very limited experience, this is most likely to happen when your pastors stand up against aggressive bullies who want to take advantage of other people. One of our jobs is to protect. I'll give you a story. Once a lady asked our pastoral team to help her because she was being, well, she was being badgered and harangued by a so-called friend. After asking her so-called friend to stop this badgering and haranguing multiple times, she requested our help. And her, her request was simple. Can you help me? Can, I, can you sit there? I've asked my so-called friend to stop coming after me. Can you just sit there and let me talk to her? This, this lady was beleaguered. This lady was broken down. This lady was just, she was a shell. And so we said, sure, we'll, we'll sit there. And, and, and uh, so... They get together, and this so-called friend got so mad at us that she, from that day, has told everybody that she comes in contact with, people hither and yon, about how abusive and heavy-handed the elders here are. Now, I was in the room. That's ridiculous. Those charges are ridiculous. We were protecting somebody from her. There are times that that kind of stuff happens. And those charges are illegitimate. And sometimes people say, well, why aren't you saying more? Why don't you do more? Well, listen, as elders, we're constrained by godly speech. And it's not, we're not free just to name names and go around and, you know, just call on people out. But our, our accusers oftentimes, our opponents, are happy to deliver accusations here, there, and everywhere like Domino's delivers pizzas. And so what we need to recognize is that if we hear a charge, don't jump to conclusions, don't prejudge, don't assume either guilt or innocence, ask. Ask. What about an elder who, who's confronted and refuses to repent? That happens. Verse 20, as for those, and he means those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Because pastoral ministry is public, a pastor needs a public rebuke, rebuke when he fails and persists in sin. This means we don't do work like a corporation where we quietly shovel someone off to the side or off staff without a word publicly. That's one way to avoid trouble, but that's not the way the Bible tells us to do this. When an elder is disqualified, the whole church must understand why. We must understand the nature of his sin and the, and the fact that he's refusing to repent and persist. Maybe not in all of its gory details, but you must understand. All elders sin, not, not all are disqualifying, but any sin that becomes life-dominating can be disqualified. And this matter takes wisdom. See, your elders are called, just like you, to live a life of constant growth, which means having the humility to confess and repent when, they, when we experience conviction. Just this week, I was, I was convicted of 
self-sufficiency. I was talking to my wife on the phone, and it hit me during a time of prayer. I was affected by my self-sufficiency, and I, it grieved me, and I saw its nasty tentacles and how it reached out from, in different ways and affected her and others. And I asked her forgiveness. That's a common sin. And we all, elders, we struggle with common sins. Now, what we want to do is make sure that you are protected. And so one of the innumerable reasons that we are not an independent church, because we're, one of the reasons we're a part of sovereign grace in our denomination is I want you to be able to be protected. I'm under no illusions. I could go off, and I want you as a church to be able to remove me. So our polity, our church government agreement, has a way in which you can remove me. If I fall into unrepentant or severe sin or begin teaching that Jesus, something like Jesus didn't rise from the dead or I pilfer funds, you need to be able to remove me. If I refuse to respond, two of you can bring a charge against me and the matter will gain a hearing by a group outside, a group of trained elders outside our church. Other elders are trained in e- e- eclat. In adjudication, ecclesiastical adjudication, easy for me to say, um, and will examine the evidence and render a ruling. That's what's described in verse 19, examining the evidence, rendering a ruling. Now, one thing I want to be clear, and I want to make it crystal clear, if I or any pastor commits a crime, you should call the police. There are matters that are ecclesiastical and there are matters that are civil. If I deny the resurrection, don't call the police. They don't care. Bring a charge. The ecclesiastical folks, they care. If I commit a crime, don't call the ecclesiastical people. Call the police. Same is true for us as elders. When we hear of crimes, especially crimes committed against children or women, we call the police. Why? Two reasons. One, so that justice is done, and so that the police can protect you from us. Because we don't, we, we work and look to protect people here. And in ecclesiastical matters, Paul, Paul tells Timothy, listen, here's how serious everything is. Verse 21. In the, here he summons a jury. He's like, okay, Timothy, if you're going to have to To adjudicate an ecclesiastical matter, here's what I want you to recognize. You have witnesses that are beyond just the folks in the church. You have witnesses that look like this. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. An elder must not play favorites in situations like this. If he's, he summons God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels as witnesses, and if the, elder, if the elder shows favoritism, he will have the wrath of heaven to pay. So we don't want to do that in any kind of situation. Your pastors serve Jesus by serving you. Now recognize this. We as pastors are not some kind of special category of man. We're not a species apart. We struggle like you do. We're all the same. In fact, today, when 
we had you know our little communion cups. This one doesn't have any bread, so that's ungodly. Um, this one does. And so as everybody was getting communion, my brother walks down the aisle, and I tossed one of these to him. And they need another one. I tossed one, another one, and, and Tiff goes, do you think you should be throwing the communion elements around? That is a good question. No, I probably shouldn't. But I've been throwing things to my brother and sometimes at my brother for years. I just wasn't thinking in that moment. And so I'm just a regular guy just like everybody else. I lay hold of the truth that Jesus has died for me just like you. I find refuge in Jesus just like you. I cry out why to Jesus just like you. I whimper forgive me to Jesus just like you. I shout at times how long to Jesus just like you. We are exactly the same. Our roles just differ. Your pastors serve Jesus by serving you. We've thought about money. We've thought about sin. And lastly, we think about ordination. In verses 22 through 25. Ordination is when we officially set a man into the office of elder. And here Paul gives us counsel in verse 22. Do not be hasty, don't be quick, in laying on of hands, that's the setting into the office, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. In some sense, if Tiffany, Tiffany, sorry, Timothy, (laughs) my wife's name is Tiffany, so... And I love her, but she does not ordain elders. In some sense, if Timothy lays hands on and officially ordains an unfit man for elder, he's compromising himself and becomes impure. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect in every choice that we make. It doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. There are times when guys who are ordained end up not being able, not being, not the pressure of ministry cracks them or they end up flaming out that that's going to happen we can only do our best and we need your help when it comes to setting appropriate candidates into the eldership how well paul gives us a couple things to look for verses 24 and 25 how do we know a suitable candidate well the sins of some verse 24 says are conspicuous going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later. His idea here is this. If someone has conspicuous sins that define their life, they are not fit to be an elder. The flip side is true also in verse 25. So also, good works are conspicuous even if those, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What we want to do is make sure that we ordain and set into the office of eldership those who are fit. Those whose lives back up the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those those whose lives back up the reality. When they say, Jesus has changed my life, you can look at their life and say, yeah, he definitely has. And also, you have the character. Not only do you have the character, you have the ability to teach. Here's the temptation. There, are, there is a temptation at times, especially in the United States, to overlook significant sins if a man can look right, can draw a crowd, can raise money, and has a bevy of apparent gifts. That's always the wrong way to handle this kind of situation. We are impure and compromised if 
we willfully ignore character red flags in a man's character and ignore him any, or ordain him anyway. The flip side's also true. His good works are evident. The best elders are ones who already have an internal desire to serve and do good and go around living that way. They don't expect or demand a position so that people will respect them. They earn respect by the pattern of their life. Instead, their lives are marked by good work so that the church recognizes him as an elder. What about the cryptic parenthetical statement in verse 23? This is interesting. The Bible's full of interesting things. Sometimes you're reading along and you think, okay, wow, that's interesting. So here Paul, he's trying to care for Timothy, and he says this, Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, just so you know, so you can imagine Timothy being a younger man, as we saw earlier in in, in 1 Timothy, going into a a volatile uh, situation in Ephesus. And you can imagine how the butterflies in his stomach might have made it to where his gastrointestinal system was compromised. And so he might have been just one of those people who had a weak constitution. Now, in that day, water was often not safe. They did not have water purification systems, and people would often drink diseased and fetid water, not knowing the correlation between sickness and microorganisms and the havoc they can wreak internally. On the other hand, wine at the time was one of the things that doctors prescribed to have a calming effect on people's stomachs. Now, I realize there are people in this room who should never take another drink of alcohol in their lives, and I get that, because you could never take just a little. And I realize there are others here who enjoy the the gift God has given in alcohol. All of us come from different places. Much of this conversation is, is a conscience issue for you to wrestle with before the Lord and not to prescribe to and for other people. And so, what have we seen? Your pastors must serve Jesus by serving you. Our point is, we want to serve you best when it comes to questions, whatever those questions are, of money, of sin, and of ordination. Our work, The work of God is not what we need to recognize. The work of God in the world today, the work of God even at the church today here is not dependent on your pastors, but upon Jesus. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, announcing to her that she would have a baby, he said, this baby will reign and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Lord is building that kingdom now, one church at a time. The Lord is building His church, and we know that the gates of hell will not, cannot prevail. The question is not whether the Lord and His purposes will prevail. He will. The question for us is, are we a part of His purposes? I hope so. My desire, my dream, 50 years from now, is that Center Church continues to be a place where we proclaim and announce the fact and the reality of all that Jesus has done and continues to do and will do into the future. 
Our call is to be fixed on Him. I don't agree with everything Count Zinzendorf said, although he had a wonderful, cool, awesome name. He said, counseling pastors, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We may be forgotten because pastors come and pastors go, but the kingdom of God endures forever. Friends, pray for your pastors. If you're part of this church, pray for us. If you're part of another church, pray for your pastors there. We want to be faithful. We want to lead in a way that we can say, follow us as we follow Jesus. Because after all, it's for his name and his fame that we work and toil and gather. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the future of our church. I pray that you would protect our church by protecting the elders here, Lord. You know that we're just men and there's a temptation for us to go off in all kinds of different directions. Lord, I pray that you would keep us on your path, doing your will, fixing ourselves upon you, Lord. I pray that we would not be preoccupied with our own name or reputation, Lord, but I pray that as elders we'd be content to be forgotten. I pray, Lord, that we would strive and work, Lord, that people not think too highly of us, but think highly of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw people to the sound of your gospel, Lord. I pray that you would continue to use this church. And, Lord, I pray for even more fruit. I pray, Lord, that you would build the strength of the hearts of men and women here who already know you. I pray also that you would draw people in from the outside world who do not know you, Lord, who awake right now and go about their day not knowing that there's a God in heaven who has sent His Son to live and die and rise so that they might not have to taste death. There are too many people out there who do not know that, Lord. And I pray that the ministry of this church would be a ministry that, 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 rebound, that redounds to the, to the Gospel to our community and, and brings people to faith. And so, Lord, I pray that the faithful ministry of the elders here at Center Church would be today, tomorrow, and continuing, Lord. We pray, I pray that you would help us not to be a detriment, Lord, but servants, oxen, just doing our best, week in, week out, to highlight the enduring power of our Savior and His kingdom, to which there is no end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.